Javeed. I am so happy to have you. Thank you so much for coming on Spilling Chai. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I kind of feel like, even though we have spoken before and we're familiar with each other's work, I sometimes feel like you're kind of the embodiment of the core of my book, <laughs> which is to revolutionize women's healthcare. I feel like you're, a lot, yeah, the personification, I should say, uh, of my book. But I wanted to ask you because when did you decide to kind of make the transition from being a doctor, you know, teaching, you've been in the academic world, you've been in the medical world, to her MD? It was a slow uh, bubbling transition, I would say. Um, and I had to wait for when the timing was right in my life. But I figured out pretty early, um, you know, I nearly lost my mother due to delayed diagnosis and dismissals. And so when I was pre-med, I had decided that I was going to be an advocate for women. And then, you know, fast forward through medical school and residency, and I was all excited and got my first real job uh, at private practice. And um, the realities of our broken healthcare system truly smacked in me and my idealistic face. And um, I just found myself, you know, not being able to be an advocate for women or make, you know, fulfill that promise that I had said I was going to do. How do you do that in 15 minutes? You are trying to meet someone, gain their trust, get a diagnosis in your head, explain to them what is probably going on with them, and then also offer them risks, benefits, alternatives, and treatments. And then don't forget to type it all up and document it, uh, you know, for the hospital or for the system. And so when my personal timing was right, because you know, I'm a mother of three, um, I came home after a particularly frustrating day where I couldn't remember my first patient of the day. And I told my husband, I said, I'm either going to stay home and raise these children. Um, I needed to make a difference or I'm going to do this, but I have to do it on my own terms because I cannot deliver um, the type of care that women truly deserve um, in our current healthcare system. And so it was just shy of my 40th birthday where I had this epiphany and I said, I'm either going to do the things the way they need to be done or I have to walk away. I love that so much. And I feel like so many women come to that point in their life, right? This or that. And if I'm going to do it, it's going to be 100%, but I'm not going to half-ass it. How do right. I do it while raising my kids and having these, these babies? Because the mom job, the mom hat is, as they say, the, the hardest job in the world. So I love that. And we're so grateful that you did make this job. <laughs> um, I'm dying, dying, dying to speak to you about all things menopause and perimenopause. Uh, and I love your work around it so much. Sometimes I see your post and I'm like, yes, that is what's needed. Or thank God that woman is out there saying this. Yes. So um, I you can tell I'm a huge fan of yours as well. But so it's a, such an interesting time, right? For the menopause world, the menopause experience. I just feel like women are having this amazing awakening. Um, I mean, I just like, I was just talking to my mom the other day and I was like, how oh, things women don't talk about and go through in silence. We can need your whole village. So I feel like people are speaking about this so much. And the New York Times recently said that menopause is experiencing, you know, this gold rush. Yeah. Talk to me about what you're seeing in the menopause space and, and what is making you excited. 
Um, it's about time is what I have to say. You know, we know that because of increasing life expectancies that women are expected to spend 40% of their life in menopause. And up until very recently, they have been ignored. Less than 20% of OBGYNs are trained in menopause and sexual health care. That's crazy. And 93%, 93% of medical students report graduating without feeling adequate comfort or education in this space. And like, how have we gotten here? And, and we know it's not enough research, not enough funding dollars, um, and, and not enough female leadership. Um, and then honestly, frank dismissals, like my mother just kept getting poo-pooed when she had left arm pain, shortness of breath, chest pain. I mean, any non-medical person could have Googled that and said, it's her heart, but science and data at the time could not explain that. And so what we're seeing now, finally, are great headlines and articles and authors like you who are saying enough's enough. And really what I'm seeing this is an impetus for women to say, oh my God, I'm going through that and I was dismissed and I'm not going to tolerate this. And I'm going to find a menopause or sexual health care expert who is going to listen to me and give me the care that I need. And so with the help of media and patients, uh, providers now that specialize in this, like myself, are able to connect with these patients and give them the care that they need. I'm seeing more and more online resources and apps um, that are available for women as teaching tools. And so I'm getting really, really excited. And then providers like myself and other organizations are making sure that we break that education barrier as well, so that we not only take care of the patients of today, but also so that the following generations will never have to deal with these dismissals or delays in diagnosis or feeling like they're being silenced. Um, I'm so glad that you brought up the lack of research and just information, the knowledge gap, the larger knowledge gap in women's health, but um, specifically around menopause, because as I've started my research into it for my next book, um, which I have to talk to you more about, um, I was shocked. I don't. I didn't think I could be uh, shocked anymore, but I was stunned to find out that it's not only not offered in medical schools to learn about menopause, but often when it is, it's an elective. Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck? I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't even, sorry. That word always falls out of me, but like, that is so crazy. And it's just a larger issue of what people just think like when women can't produce babies anymore, like our chief mission in life is just gone and no one cares. How can no one say, Hey, what happens in this stage of women's life oh, of women's health? It's just so infuriating to me. I think historically they think in OBGYN, one of the reasons we got here is that historically most OBGYN providers were male Mm -hmm. and they looked at women for two outcomes for childbearing. That's why we have a lot more reproductive data. Still not enough. I mean, I feel Mm -hmm. like all areas of women's health care, we struggle. And the second was objects of male pleasure. And that's why even when you look at the sexual disparity and there's a lot of sexual dysfunction when it comes to menopause, um, but there's a lot outside of the menopausal years too. You even look at the FDA-approved medications. Uh, men have about 26, and they deserve them, but women only have about two. Our first FDA-approved medication for female sexual dysfunction took six years to get FDA-approved. Uh, Viagra was fast-tracked, so uh, erectile dysfunction was a national emergency. It was fast-tracked in six months. And so when you look at this, there are just so many inherent um, biases that have led us you know, to where we are. Um, so a lot of uh, barriers and, and hurdles, but the 
good news is like conversations like this, your books, you know, the media and my patients over the last 20 years really noticed have becoming a lot braver. They're recognizing that they have to be part of the solution that they have to advocate for themselves and really align with the right providers so that they are partners in their care, right? And not just passive recipients because right now, if you just wait for it to happen, unless you're really, really lucky and find that provider, um, it's not going to happen for you. And in the future, it may, but right now, you have to take a very, very active role in your own healthcare. Oh my goodness. Amen and hallelujah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was writing down notes while you're out. I cannot forget that line. Yes. Oh my goodness. If I could have a mantra tattooed to my head, it would be that. What is your opinion on, I mean, I think it's always really great when celebrities get involved in a cause, but a lot of people also criticize because they're always trying to push a product. And we're seeing this, especially around menopause, right? I'm so happy that Goop is on it and Gwyneth Paltrow is on it. I love Naomi Watts. I think it's great, but what is your feeling on the celebrity kind of um, involvement in menopause, because that is what the gold rush is doing, right? Because there's some really well-funded startups, but of course the celebrities get the lion's share of the money and the attention. What do you, what do you think about that generally? So I actually think it's a great thing and I'll tell you why. Um, It is finally delivering attention to a much needed area. And if we are going to get brave voices like Naomi and Stacey London to speak about it and speak about it authentically, which they both have about their own struggles. And that's, if you think about that, these women have access, education, means, and they're still struggling. I am really happy about it because I use it as yet another collective voice. I think where we have to be careful and where a lot of patients struggle is they want education that is like Switzerland, right? So they want uh, people to recommend products or medications, hormone, non-hormone supplements, suppositories, but someone who is not going to benefit maybe from the sale of that medication. And I think that's where... Uh, Naomi and Stacy and a lot of these other celebs have been very smart in partnering with uh, physicians who um, are neutral, right? And who are just giving uh, the best medical advice. You know, I recommend uh, over-the-counter products. I have a lot of patients who will need it in addition to hormone, who maybe not be candidates for hormone or don't want a prescription medication. And they're like, Dr. Javeda, I just want you to address my vaginal dryness, or I want you to help me, you know, with my dry skin. And I'm not quite ready for this. And so I think it's this collection of products, services, uh, voices, people that are truly going to give patients all of their options. Bravo. Yes, exactly. Okay. I love that. We are hearing um, so much about menopause, but we're also not hearing as much. I mean, I feel like the word is getting out there about perimenopause. Mm-hmm. For our audience, for my audience members, can you define what is the difference? What is the difference? What is menopause and what is menopause? Okay. So menopause average age in the United States, and this is average is 51. Um, and it is measured by 
12 consecutive months with no menstruation. So you cannot still be having abnormal bleeding um, and be considered menopausal. And for women who maybe have had a partial hysterectomy or an ablation or like, well, Dr. Fabe, how am I supposed to know if I'm in menopause or not? There's blood testing that we can do. We check the menopause hormone, which is an FSH level. And if it's above a certain number that differs in labs, then we declare that you're menopausal. Perimenopause is all the symptoms of menopause, hot flashes, insomnia, low libido, dry skin, vaginal dryness, maybe incontinence. I mean, there's up to 50 different symptoms of of menopause. Mm -hmm. Um, It can precede menopause by up to 10 years. So you can start in your 30s, technically. Um, And the only difference between peri and menopause is that in perimenopause, you are still bleeding. It, It may not be regular. It's likely you know, becoming irregular, maybe more spaced out, sometimes closer together before you finally have cessation or complete stoppage of your bleeding. And so that's the difference. It's the bleeding. Love it. That is so great and important uh, to have that differentiation because I feel like a lot of women um, get confused, right? And because of the lack of conversation around it, but then you hear about menopausal, but we're hearing perimenopausal and people don't I feel like women have been sold this idea that menopause is something that just happens to you overnight and all of a sudden you're in it versus this very, very long journey. Um, I keep hearing from women um, that they felt one quote that keeps coming, one description is I felt like I was going crazy. I felt like I was losing my mind. So what is this kind of, I mean, it's, it's ironic because women have been dismissed as, you know, hysterical for so long. But it's almost like before we get menopausal, we do have a period where we are literally, because, you know, it's insomnia. There's so many different kinds of, uh, so many kinds of symptoms, as you said. What is your, what do you have to say to that when women feel like they're going crazy and they can't even imagine that it could be they're approaching menopause? What do you say? Um, so it's very funny. This is where I'm going to get very personal and I normally don't. So yes, there is more anxiety and depression and palpitations in menopause for sure. And so I started experiencing my first hot flashes. So I'm going to be 48, um, last summer and I'm a menopause expert, have read about it, been treating it. And when I had my own quote unquote hot flashes, um, I was just interviewed for hot flashes much more than a hot, like just feeling like you're warm. Uh, my girls were both away at camp and there was no way of communicating with them other than like sending, um, emails and, uh, you know, was anxious about it. We're a close family unit. And so I was waking up in the middle of the night and with my heart racing and feeling like I was having a full blown panic attack and nothing would help. I would pace the room and, and my husband, who's also a physician is like, Oh, you're just like stressed out because the girls are gone and you can't talk to them. And so then about the third time this happened, I normally don't sweat. My girlfriends will tell you I go to hot yoga and they're like, there's something wrong with her. She doesn't sweat. I was drenched. And I was like, oh my God, these are hot flashes. Like that's what was happening. And so my hot flashes and a lot of patients' hot flashes, they have this feeling of impending doom, that they're going to die, that, that this, this 
profound anxiety, but they, they will tell you they didn't go to sleep anxious about anything. And I have uh, dealt with women who said they've gone on the bathroom floor and put their cheek against the floor, feeling like their heart is racing, feeling like they're having a heart attack. I think Oprah even reported this feeling, and this can all be collectively a part of a hot flash or a part of your menopausal symptoms. And so I will tell women they're not going crazy that a lot of women experience this, um, you know, meditation, breathing through it, yoga, obviously hormone replacement therapy. There are so many things that you can do in that moment, particularly when it feels like it's um, getting out of control. And then the other mental piece that happens in menopause that's been described is mild cognitive decline. And the reason I use mild is because I don't want people to think that they're going to get dementia um, because of menopause. But forgetfulness, uh, word finding, you know, I have a lot brain of fog. Yeah, right. brain fog kind of, or people will uh, compare it to pregnancy fog, same thing. Like there's changes in hormones, forgetting where they put everyday objects. This is very, very normal. Um, and there are things that you can do to combat this, to improve your cognitive function. Um, you know, Exercises that require hand-eye coordination. Um, there are brain games that you can play. Hormones have been proven to help with this if you're interested in hormones. Um, there are a multitude of different ways that you can combat this feeling. So uh, tell women you're not alone, you're not crazy, and there are things that you can do about it and you don't just have to live with it. Oh my God, just hearing you're not alone is so important to women in so many issues. It's kind of like a me too of menopause, right? Yes. You're not alone. Me too. Me too. Yes. And I just think it's funny because, you know, women sometimes will be like, I can't believe I didn't recognize, you know, they're not taught. And I knew I was educated, but I will tell you, this is what I said to someone the other day, the discord of what is described as a hot flash versus what it feels like. Uh, it completely unfair. Like yeah. we have been misled. <laughs> About so much, but you're right. We've been completely misled about menopause. And going back to Oprah, what's about Gail, uh, Gail King and uh, Drew Barrymore also. I think Gail King did a whole series on CBS um, this morning about, about menopause. And um, they also had a really, really refreshing conversation. But going back to um, Oprah, she was actually talking about how, I mean, she was having heart palpitations and everybody thought, you know, no, not one single doctor. She said she went to five doctors, not one single one of them uh, even suggested that it could uh, be menopause. But she was just like, what is the difference between menopause and breast cancer? Because there's so much information and so mm -hmm. much campaigning around it. And she was like, was it just a better uh, marketing campaign? And her answer was yes. So what the heck? <laughs> Why did I so infuriating you know a man was behind that decision right make it all pink and breast cancer i mean no offense not to you know uh belittle <laughs> or take away the seriousness of breast cancer but hello there's other issues I think what happened, you know, and they described this in that beautiful uh, Times article about women being misled in menopause is that WHI study that was done, um, you know, and so that was very, very misleading. It was stopped abruptly. Um, the estrogen and progesterone arm is the one that showed a slight increase in breast cancer. That study, because they pulled it early, did not show the cardiovascular benefit that they were anticipating. If you looked at the women on the estrogen 
an arm only, they actually had a decreased incidence of breast cancer. They had a decreased incidence of mortality overall. And those women that were diagnosed with breast cancer who were on the estrogen only had a decreased risk of dying from that breast cancer. And so, but we didn't share any of that, right? We called these headlines and said, we're stopping this study and women were throwing out their medication. And I will tell you in the OBGYN community, I know doctors that after that study, they stopped prescribing and to this day do not offer women hormone replacement therapy, despite multiple studies after that, that have proven the cardiovascular benefit, have proven bone benefit, have proven the decreased mortality benefit. Um, you know, there's a certain number of years that you should start hormone replacement therapy, um, you know, ideally within 10 years of menopause. And that was the other problem with the study. Do you know that they included women 70 to 79? That's not the target audience. Why were we collecting data? And the women that we actually treat, that 50 to 60 age group was actually underrepresented in that study. And so we're studying medication on a population that we're actually not usually prescribing it for. The study was flawed. Um, they called a press conference, but then there was no press conference for all of the great data. Yeah. And so doctors themselves who did not stay uh, abreast of, um, you know, menopause data did not know, uh, patients and women did not know. And so that is why, yes, menopause has had the worst PR, PR campaign ever. And people just, you know, want to stay away yeah. from it because they were scared. Um, and actually, you know, we've done more harm than good by withholding, um, hormone replacement therapy. You know, women have more cardiovascular events. They can have more fractures from falls, increased risk of osteoporosis, and then just overall quality of life. Who wants to walk around with hot flashes, insomnia, anxiety, palpitations, um, you know, no libido, women lose their relationships. We saw that 900,000 women in the UK left the workforce. Uh, there was a recent article about how many billions of dollars we're losing um, because women are not able to function. And so it, it just can't continue. Um, and we see this, this is pervasive across a lot of female healthcare conditions, but I think it's particularly alarming when you look at menopause and you look at sexual health. So these taboo um, topics. Um, I just don't understand how there, I mean, how this wasn't criminal, <laughs> why there wasn't like a major freaking lawsuit because the link linking cancer and hormone replacement therapy. I think you just have to say those two words. And it was like a PR crisis campaign that nobody ever thought to correct. And also point out, just like you said, that you know women enter these stages of their life, perimenopause and menopause, much younger than we have been told. Right. Like, what the, no wonder women in their like mid-40s are thinking uh, they're losing their minds, right? Because even as me and my girlfriends are, you know, experiment experiencing, experiencing uh perimenopausal symptoms. All my girlfriends will be like, but we're not that old, but like, am I old? And it's just like, no, we just have not been informed. But why wasn't this a major lawsuit? I mean, what, what can we still sue? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> um, we can change the future. We can explain why that data, um, you know, is not 
as pertinent, you know, or pull out the good data from that and say, okay, these are the reasons the study was good. This is what it proved. This wasn't shared. Um, and then share all of the subsequent data, you know, that came out after that and kind of fix what we've done. But I agree with you. It is a horrible thing that happened. I do not I think know. it happened to the male population. Uh, you know, so uh, there's a lot for me. I- I'm data driven, but I'm also solution driven. You know, I think I it's it. started in me. These are the problems. What can I do now, you know, to fix it? And what can I do to ensure that future generations of both providers and patients will never experience this again? And I think the other thing that I'm really excited about in the femtech space is not only are we seeing, you know, traditional solutions, providers like myself, but we're also seeing all this innovation and excitement mm-hmm. and now funding in this space. And I think, you know, going back to the celeb question you asked me about, um, I, I, the other thing I like about celebs coming forward is a lot of celebrities initially didn't because they were worried that it would ruin their career, mm-hmm. that they would not get the roles that they wanted, that they wanted longevity. So in our minds, um, I, I did this uh, lecture and talk with a lot of major uh, retail companies. I said, women were taught that menopausal women, I love the golden girls, but that was the golden girls. And if you looked at their ages, I think they were in their forties when they were playing those, those women. Right. Yeah. But now it's like Michelle Obama and probably Jennifer Lopez and, yeah. uh, you know, Naomi Watts. Anymore, yeah. so the menopausal woman has changed. And I think when, you know, I tell patients that I said, you know, this woman is likely in menopause. This woman has said she's in menopause and look at them. That is the new menopausal woman. That's the new paradigm. And so you don't have to be afraid. You're not going to be on a sofa with thick glasses, with the shawl wrapped around you crocheting. I mean, if that's what you want to do, that's, that's great. But I think that is the other power of media and the celebrity is that we have changed, um, what the menopausal woman looks like. Uh, I love that. I might steal that line from you. The new (laughs) menopausal woman. Oh my goodness. I love it. Um, Okay. So one of my last questions is, uh, and you kind of touched upon it. I feel like with, also, I feel like Femtech is kind of having a gold rush now. Yes, please fund our startups and our ideas and allow us to be innovative. Um, And I find, I love your work around sexual health. And I had a very interesting, it's always so interesting when you speak to your girlfriends or you speak to the women in your life and you're like, huh, do you really think that? Um, but recently I feel like, you know, there's so many new kinds of vibrators out there. I feel like it's a real kind of testament to women just entering the space that not everybody wants, you know, like a, a shaft as a vibrator. Right. <laughs> right. And there's so much, actually lack of research once again around the clitoris, which has like so many amazing muscles. What? Where do you think we are? Because I feel like we're very ahead, but every now and then I'll have like a moment where I'm like, are we not as advanced in women's sexual health as I think? But where do you think we are with women's sexual health? Are you feeling like we're kind of at a real turning point or we have maybe turned a corner? I absolutely do. I uh, see a new revolution coming. For the first time ever, we had mainstream data uh, that was presented at a conference about the pelvic floor and sexual health benefits of vibrators. We have a smart vibrator now that is measuring orgasms and teaching us much more than we've ever learned uh, since the first models of female orgasm were taught, I think, back in the 1950s or 60s. We have vibrators that no longer look like purple penises. They're very elegant 
print um, and are designed with a woman, uh, the modern woman in mind. And I think when you see vibrators in Target and Sephora, um, we are starting to reclaim female sexual pleasure and saying we are allowed to talk about this as well. Um, and so I think there is a huge turning point. You look at companies like Dame and Mod um, and Women Us that are mm-hmm. offering women female lubricants um, and vibrators. Mm-hmm. I think we are breaking a lot of... Uh, barriers and, and stigma. And you have providers like myself and a lot of others that are now talking about vibrators as a sexual health tool. I hate the word toy. It's so dismissive. I mean, sex should be fun. Yes. When you talk about toys, um, I think it that's what we- like the whole thing, right? Uh, yeah, because vibrators can be used to promote not only orgasm, you know, or to treat orgasm dysfunction, but also to improve pelvic floor health and then also to improve all of the domains of sexuality. So sexual health experts, we talk about the domains. So that are that's things like desire, arousal, sexual pain, um, lubrication. So those are the things that we talk about when we're actually trying to diagnose, you know, what is wrong or right with someone's uh sexual life. And so, um, I think that we are going to see more and more, um, medications. Uh, there are now two FDA approved medications for low libido. I think we're going to see more, uh, tools and over the counter options for women. And I think we're going to see more and more education. And so I really believe female sexual health is the next uh, revolution or the next wave right after menopause. And particularly because there are so many sexual health concerns mm-hmm. in menopause, it almost goes hand in hand that that's right. the next point. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love that. And also for women to understand that your sexual health is a part of your overall health. It's a part, it's women's health. This is what my friend was saying. She's like, well, how is it related? I'm like, I don't know, sexual health, women's health. Hello. How can we not? You know, we're taught to so keep it like away from us. And it's like, no, this is a part of who we are. We're allowed to have, you know, we're, we're entitled, right? We are entitled to sexual pleasure. What the heck? So this is what you tell your girlfriend. And this is what I say. Sexual health care is health care. It, it, bottom you. line, people who are having sex have a healthier pelvic floor. They have a lower resting heart rate. They have lower blood pressure. They're more confident. Okay. They tend to be happier in their relationships. And so it affects almost every aspect Whoa. of our life. And so sexual health care is health care. So if we take one sound bite, you know, away from today, that's what we can say. And that's what I teach. And I, I want women to really understand that when they go into the doctor, there should be no difference um, if they're talking to them about their ear or their head versus their vagina. It's a body part. And so I, I want to eradicate any shame or stigma that comes along with talking about our sexuality and our sexual health. Oh my goodness. I hate that word. And I feel like it's shame. I hate it in every language, you know, in in Urdu, it's, it's shadam, right? And in Bangladesh, I I hate that word. And yes, you're so right. Let's remove all kinds of shame. We've dealt with it for centuries. No mas, no more shame. Um, I could speak to you forever. And I also feel like this interview has been like an education. I literally have my notes. Uh, but I know you are so busy, Dr. Javed. Thanks so much for coming, spilling the tea with us on women's health, on menopause, and sharing all your expertise. Um, I am so grateful that we have been connected. I feel like um, you are 
heaven sent. <laughs> I feel the same way about you. Thank you for this amazing conversation and all the compliments. When you said that I was your book incarnate, I was like, all right, I'm done. I don't need to hear anything else for the rest of the day. Stop. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and spilling tea with us. And I will speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye.